If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be starting a, a new series through the book of James. Uh, so we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 this morning. So as we get into this book, as we look at it, it's, it's important that we have a little bit of an understanding uh, of where we're going. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to look at James next is uh, we looked at Philippians, which is written by the Apostle Paul, and, and a good chunk of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. So I wanted to uh, go to a book that was written by a different author, get some different themes, but also see how through the Holy Spirit uh, we see the same themes and the same truth carrying across various books. So who wrote the book of James? Well, one guess, his name was probably James. Um, but there are two possible people that people would, that, that you would maybe think could have written it. Uh, the first being James the Apostle. Um, but most, most people would agree that it was not likely written by James the Apostle, James the disciple of Jesus, because he was martyred very early on um, in, in the early church. We see that in the book of Acts, that he was martyred uh, very early uh, in, the, in the church. And, and the other James that we see active and working in the early church that was a leader within the church was James the half-brother of Jesus. And that is most commonly who the book of James is, is attributed to as the author, James the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and, and again, so we see that this is probably likely an early letter uh, due to its lack of mentioning several events that happened in the book of Acts. Uh, so James, a, as we will get to in chapter 2, he seems to have encountered some teaching or some wrong understanding of teaching that is related to what Paul teaches, salvation by faith alone. But it doesn't seem that he has met Paul yet, which happens uh, toward the end of of the 40s A.D. So uh, or probably an early, mid-40s mid is kind of the A.D. Of, of the writing of James. Uh, the, the background of who it is to, the audience, it says at the, the very first verse, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. And we see that James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, his ministry was primarily to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites that were dispersed abroad. And so that's what he's talking about here. So we're going to see what we today can learn from the book of James. It's a very practical book with a lot of, of good things that we can learn for our life. So with that, let's start in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways." Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his ex exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, 
and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us where we get to come together and to worship. We thank you for the fathers that that we celebrate on Father's Day, but Lord, we thank you most of all for what you have given us in Jesus Christ, the salvation that we have available to us, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that during these next moments as we look at what your word says to us, as we look at what you have said in scripture, that we can look at our lives, we can evaluate how we're living and see how we line up with what you call us to be. God, I pray that during this time you would help us to be clear of any distractions, clear of anything that would hinder us, anything that would take us away from focusing on what you want us to hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this passage has a lot. There's a lot going on here, but there's a a main theme that goes throughout it. That's why we had so many verses that we're dealing with. But we're talking about tempted, being tempted and tried. Enduring through trial is the first thing we see here. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 12 Later in the passage says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So the question we have to ask, what is a trial? What is a trial? The most common way that we use the word trial in our world is when someone is being on trial for a crime or on trial for something, right? We, we see how someone goes and they're being judged on whether or not They have done the thing they're being accused of, whether they've broken the law, whether they have done this transgression. In this passage, the word uses pierasmos, and it has two meanings that are both used in this passage. Attempting to find or determine the true nature of something in temptation or enticement. Okay, so attempting to find or determine the true nature of something. And and that would be most similar to how we use the word trial today. Right? When someone goes and they're put on trial, you are testing and attempting to determine, did this person commit the crime they're accused of? Is the, true, is the true nature of these events as the prosecution says, or is it as the defense says? What is the true nature? It's a trial to determine what is true. And the other one that we see is temptation or enticement. A trial. But we don't usually call that a trial. We call that temptation, most, most commonly in our words so we are to, to look at the various kinds of trials that we come up with. So what are some different trials that we face today? Different ways where we are tested and, and the, the, the life that we live is tested. And that's important that I want you to understand. Attempting to find or determine the true nature of something. As Christians, when we face trials, when we go through life and difficulty comes, those things can and should be considered trials. When you, and you often probably have heard this, don't, do not pray for patience. Why? Because God will give you things that will test your patience, right? The way that we know if we are patient is when our patient has been, patience has been put to the test. 
A person can say they're a patient when there is nothing that is challenging that claim. How do you know if that's true? When their patience is put to the test. So if we are claiming to be Christians, if we are claiming to follow Christ, when we encounter trials, what are those trials doing? They are testing and pushing that claim of being a follower of Christ. So will we live like Christ? Will we do the things that Christ calls us to do in the face of adversity? It's easy to claim that you are a Christian when there is no challenge, no test or trial before you. But when you are faced with loving the unlovable, when you're faced with forgiving the unforgivable, do you put what Christ has taught you and called you to into practice? That is a trial, right? So this is what, that's the first one. And then temptation. This is the temptation to sin, the temptation or enticement to sin, to do in the same way, to do what you are not supposed to do as a Christian. So what kinds of trials do we face? The first kind I think it's important that we acknowledge is we all face various kinds of internal trials. Every single one of us, every single day or at various points through our life, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier, we'll face internal trials. These are things that we face within ourselves. No one may know, no one may be aware of the internal trials that you face. This is conflict within. And in our society, we see these things manifest in large ways through how, how people are dealing with anxiety and depression. Where do these things come from? Trials within, conflict within the person, struggling, battling with what is going on inside of themselves. So we have internal conflict. And we also have external conflict. This is conflict that's outside of yourself. This is when there are things that are happening that you're having to deal with. These are very visible to, to observers. Someone could walk in and see this type of trial, this conflict. We see in the early church how they're being persecuted. That is a trial that they are facing. And it is not something that is going on within them. So there's internal and external. And there's also self-inflicted and other-inflicted. Okay, so we have self-inflicted trials. These are things that we struggle with based upon our own decisions and circumstances. Have you ever met a person that, that seems to be having a lot of things going really wrong in their life, but if you look at it, it's kind of like, well, didn't you kind of do those things to yourself? It's like if someone's being evicted, but they just decided they didn't want to pay their rent. They, they had the money to, but they decided they didn't want to do it. Whose problem is that? The person that decided that they didn't want to do what they ought to do. The conflict, the trial they're in the middle of was of their own doing. So we sometimes, and we have to be aware of that, sometimes when we face hard times, when we face difficult things, the blame lies upon us. We have to be aware of that. Our natural inclination is to point and to look other directions, but sometimes we struggle with things based upon our own decisions and circumstances. I've told, and no doubt you've told your, your people that you have been influential over, your, your kids, those, their friends, be careful who you're friends with, right? If you know that someone is involved in something that is not very good, and you go and you choose to be around them, and you wind up in those circumstances, there is some level of blame that lies upon you for knowing and going and being involved with those things. On the other, on the other hand, there's self-inflicted, but then there's other-inflicted, people that are doing things that cause you to struggle, this is so often where we might point most of the struggles we face, but I don't think it is most of them, but they're definitely 
do exist times where we face trials and struggles that are other inflicted. The early church is a good example of that. They are facing a, a, a leadership and, and government that does not want them to follow Christ. And they're coming against them simply because they follow Christ. People doing things that cause you to struggle. Regardless of what type of trial you're facing, regardless of where it may be coming from, what does this passage tell us? Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Consider it a great joy. How is experiencing a trial joyful? How is experiencing a trial joyful? How is having this internal conflict, external conflict, things, even if it's your own fault or whether it's someone else's fault, how can that be joyful? And the truth that I will tell you today, and what this passage actually does tell you, is that the trial itself is not joyful. You are not going to derive joy from experiencing what you're experiencing. If someone lies about you and hurts you, that will not make you feel joy. Why do you count those things as joyful? Consider it great joy. Why? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So why do we consider it a joy? Not because of what you're experiencing, but because of what you are, because of what you know what you're experiencing will produce. Right? So consider it a great joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we have two, when we go through trials, when we go through these trials, we have two options. We can overcome the trial, we can trust God, follow Him in faith, overcome the trial, or we can be overcome by the trial. And throughout your life, you can look and you can see many people who have taken one or the other option. Right? If you're facing a temptation, you're facing a struggle, you can overcome that trial. You can get through it to the other side, or you can be overcome by the struggle that you're facing. Overcoming adversity produces positive results. Overcoming adversity and trials and, and tribulations in our life produces positive results. When we think about gold, many of you are probably wearing a, a wedding band or some sort of jewelry that's gold. How did it get to the level of clarity that, he, that it is? Through refinement, through fire or chemicals or acid that take and tear apart the impurities until what's left is something pure and refined and valuable. And so when we come and we follow Christ and we face trials and temptations and these things come against us and we persevere, what falls away? The bad, the impure, the sinful things that drag us down, the things that enticed us in the first place. Remember, temptation is one of the definitions of trial. So when you face temptation and you come through that temptation by the power of Christ, you have experienced victory through what Christ has taught you to do. In the same way, what I'll challenge you with is that failing in the face of trial should give you motivation to do better in the future. Failing in the face of a trial should give you motivation to do better in the future. I've shared before that my favorite movie series is Rocky. And one of the quotes that he, he says in those movies, I think, is very applicable to what this looks like in the Christian life. You, and he's talking to his son in, in one of the newer movies, and he says, You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. In our Christian life, in following Christ, 
the idea that we will be perfect and get it right every single time the first try is absurd. We are in the flesh. We will fail. We will not be able to be perfect. But what does matter is that through trial, through tribulation, you continue to pursue the goal of Christ, continue to be obedient, and never give up on following Christ. And when you do that, you will be able to become more like Christ. So as we get through just this very first part, are you allowing yourself to be shaped and molded by what you're experiencing? Are you being tossed about by the events of your life? Are you being informed and growing because of what has happened in your life? Are you allowing the events that you are facing in your life to overwhelm you, to overcome you? These trials are bigger than you. Well, the truth of that is that they are, but they are not bigger than the God that you follow. What you are facing may not be overcomable by your own means, but with God, you can overcome and persevere through these things. So are you being tossed about? Are you hopeless and wandering through these trials and tribulations you face? Or are you trusting in God, seeking Him, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard it may be, faithfully pursuing Him through what you're facing? No matter where you are, what you're individually struggling with today, how well you may be doing or how bad you may be doing, we all need the help of God to come through it. And because of that, we should expect God's blessing. We should expect God's blessing. Moving on to the next couple of verses, James 1, 5 through 8 says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. If you lack wisdom, this is what it says, so you should persevere, persevere through these trials. You should seek to be, overcome these trials to be made complete. But if you lack wisdom, ask God because he gives freely. So God is the one who supplies wisdom. And, and, but what wisdom are we talking about? I, I think we should look at Proverbs chapter 2. Again, these are, these are Israelites. These are people who would know the Old Testament. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2, 10 through 15 says, For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will delight you. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you. It will rescue you from the way of evil, from anyone who says perverse things, from anyone who abandons the right paths to walk in the ways of darkness, from those who enjoy doing evil and celebrate perversion, whose paths are crooked and whose ways are devious. The wisdom... That this is talking about. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give it to you. What is that wisdom? It's not about being smart. It's not about being better at math or any intellectual activity. It is about knowing how to follow God in the face of all the things we encounter. In the face of all the things that we encounter. What does the wisdom do? It will enter your heart and the knowledge will delight you. It will watch over you and your understanding will guard you. It will rescue you from the way of evil from anyone, okay, so it'll rescue you from the, the way of evil, the things that may be evil within you, from the, from the one who says perverse things, those who abandon the right paths and way, walk in darkness. So what this wisdom is going to do is going to instruct you and help you to know the will of God and how to follow the will of God, to be able to discern what God's will is for your life, how you ought to live, and to discern how you should do that in your life. 
So if you want to overcome trials and tribulations and temptations in your life, ask God for wisdom, the wisdom to know what God's will is for your life. So whatever trial you may be facing, you will know and understand how God would want you to respond, how God would want you to live through that. And he will give you through this wisdom the ability to do that. It's wisdom about who God is, wisdom about how to follow him, and wisdom about how to overcome the trials and what to learn from them. And what we see here is that God wants to give you wisdom. It says here that he gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. Reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus right there on Father's Day, we're, we're having to acknowledge that we, even as best we try, are failures. He says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, right? If they ask for something to eat, you're not going to give them a rock. If they ask for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake. So you know how to give good gifts. How much more will your Father in heaven give you what you need? Will give you good gifts. If you ask Him for wisdom, if you ask Him for help through what you're facing, God will be there. He will do it. He wants to help you. He wants to guide you through this life of following Him. But we see that we're supposed to ask in faith without doubt. This is the hard part. Ask without doubt. What does it say here? Verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Doubt reveals that we don't trust God to do what we ask. If we don't trust God to do what he asks, we shouldn't, as this passage tells us, expect to receive it. When we doubt that the Lord will work on our behalf, James says that we are like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind, that we should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Doubt makes us unstable. How many times have you had that happen in your life? The idea of kind of hedging your bets is is the term you would use, but if you make a contingency plan, right? You're expecting something to go through. You're expecting something to happen, but just in case, right? You have a contingency plan. You have a backup plan in case that doesn't work. With God, we cannot have a contingency plan. We can't have a, well, what if God doesn't come through plan? Because if God doesn't come through, what hope do we have? The answer is none. But the good news is that God will always come through. God is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. Doubt makes us unstable. It makes us not commit to important things. If we doubt something, we're not as likely to commit to it. There are very few instances in life where you have to really commit. Even the biggest commitments in life have become less committed, right? Marriage is supposed to be till death do us part, but, but oftentimes, sadly, the unfortunate truth is it isn't. And a lot of people 
hedge their bets when they go into marriage. There are prenuptial agreements. There are, well, what if we don't last? There are, there's one thing, one place where I can think where you have to have zero doubt that I've, well, there's probably many, but one that came to my mind in particular. Uh, there, there's a, a documentary called Free Solo. Do you know what that is? Have you seen it? Have you heard of it? It's about rock climbing. And free soloing is when you go and you climb a rock with absolutely no aid. You climb a surface, and we're not talking about a little, a little hill in your backyard. We're talking about like Yosemite, ma- massive peaks in Yosemite. They climb these massive thousand feet surfaces, rocks, with no aid or help. There's no rope. There's no net. They have to know that they can do it. What happens if they get halfway up and they begin to doubt? They doubt their ability. They doubt what's going to happen. Makes them unstable. They have to know that they can do it. Faith, believing God, is an anchor that keeps us rooted in Christ. It keeps us grounded and focused on what God would have us to do. When we ask God, help me, give me wisdom, show me what I should do, we need to believe that God can and will move in those moments. We're not talking about asking God to grant your every wish and your desire. And we get to that later in James. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. I think that's chapter 4. We'll get there. Ask for wisdom is being very specific. Without doubt, it will be given to you. He says that if we doubt that we are double-minded, what does that mean? Luke 10, 27 says, He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We are to love God with all that we are. When we follow God, we follow Him with all that we are. When we trust God, we trust Him with all that we are. If we doubt, what does that mean? There is something else that we are placing our trust, our faith in. It doesn't seem that way. But it is. If we don't believe that God can do it, there's something else that we're believing or someone else we're believing can. Is it ourselves? Are we believing that, well, I need to do this just in case God doesn't do it. I need to have a plan, my plan in place just in case God doesn't come through for me. That's not all your heart, all your soul. Well, you know, these people in my life really love me and they will take care of me. If God doesn't come through, these people will have my back. That's not loving God with all that you are. That's a double-mindedness, a, a divided soul, a divided attention, a divided heart focused on other things other than God. We cannot be divided. We must love God with all that we are. Doubt reveals a fracture in our desire. We aren't loving God and trusting Him with all we are when there is doubt. So James takes a turn here and focuses on something that is one of the things that might make people double-minded. And often in this life, it makes many people double-minded. We see this idea of exaltation and humiliation. James 1, 9 through 11, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field for the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities we see this often 
with Jesus in particular, as he's going through his life, there was one person that, that he interacts with, the rich young ruler who was double-minded. How he said, how can I inherit eternal life? I've kept the law, I've kept the commandments. One thing you lack, sell all you possess, give to the poor, and follow me. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I think that James probably put this in here as an example of one of the things that might make people double-minded. This idea that might keep you tossed in the wind, unstable. But we see something interesting here. The poor will be exalted. The poor will be exalted. Those who are experiencing poor, those who are poor experience nothing but hardship and difficulty in this life. And I want to challenge you with this. How do you view the poor? And we need to contextualize a little bit during this time and in our country, the idea of, of poverty and the idea of poverty of biblical times are very different. But, but still, I want to challenge you. How do you view people that are poor? How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as poor or as rich? Depends on who you compare yourself to, right? A person that's starving and has no food, maybe you're doing better than them. You wouldn't be poor compared to that person. But next to some of the people that have billions and billions of dollars, you would probably consider yourself quite poor. But the poor will be exalted. These are people that are struggling, that are facing difficulty in this life. What does the Bible tell us over and over again? That we are to care for the poor, for the widow, for those who are in difficult circumstances. To love them, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to these people. But the poor will be exalted because of their humble circumstances. And the rich will be humiliated. And in particular, he's talking about how those who are rich are pursuing nothing but earthly possession and gain. They are looking to expand their wealth, to grow. And he says that they will wither away while pursuing their activities. And I challenge you with this. How do you view the rich? Oftentimes, and indefinitely in our culture, the idea is that the rich are someone to be admired and to strive to be like. They're successful and we should seek to do what they did. Seek to be wealthy like they are wealthy. And I would challenge you with the assertion that we are all most likely very rich in comparison to what this would have in mind for richness. We have the leisure and the luxury to pursue the things we want, to, to pursue the things that we don't need, these desires, these, these wealthy things. And, and he says that, that they will be, they will fall away, they will perish. Think about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in purple clothes and lived in every day in luxury. He had never wanted it for anything. He was very wealthy. And Lazarus sat at his gate covered in wounds. And the dogs even licked his wounds. He, he, wanted, he just desired to eat the, the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And they both die. And, and Lazarus is with Abraham in heaven. And, and the rich man is tormented. He says, in, in the, in your, Abraham tells him, in, in Life, you experienced everything and you had no wants and, and he, Lazarus had nothing. And now he is comforted. And he tells him, hey, send someone back from the dead to just warn my family. And he says, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Just a little, uh, little, a little telling of what Jesus is about to do. He's about to, to die and to, to be raised again three days later. And what does the world still do? They still reject the one raised from the dead. The warning from that 
The warning from this is to not be a person that is double-minded, pursuing things of this world. You will see this all throughout James, pursuing things of this world rather than pursuing God. Do not be double-minded. Pursue Christ with all that you are. Then we come back and we see that we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine our hearts. James 1, 13 through 15 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I want us to look for a few moments at how we deal with temptation, these specific kind of trials in our lives. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that God does not tempt us. God does not tempt us. We should not say this. We should not have this attitude that, that God is the one that is putting these things in our lives. Because to do so would be to indict God of wrong and evil. And we cannot do that. And in this passage, we see the life cycle of sin. The life cycle of sin. So what are we tempted by? We are tempted by our own desire that is conceived. Our desire that is conceived. It is essential that we understand that our desires are not right in and of themselves. The world tells you that if you desire something, it must be good. To follow your heart. Right? Follow your heart. What does Scripture say about the desires of our heart? Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? And then while explaining what defiles a person, Jesus says this in Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So from within, our desires are what lead to temptation. That's the, the birthplace of temptation. In the world that we live in goes so far as to say that people are born with certain inclination, and that justifies these inclinations. If you look at what's being celebrated this month in our nation, if you look at, at the way people talk about various trials and temptations they face, well, alcoholism runs in the family, as though it's an excuse to partake in that. Criminals complain and have even used as a defense that they are predisposed genetically to violence. And here's what I want to challenge you with today. That whether or not a person is born with any certain of inclination or desire or propensity to do a certain thing that does not make it right. I want you to consider what uh, Christopher Wan says. Yet for Christians... Innateness doesn't mean that something is permissible, meaning that just because you might be inclined to do something, that doesn't mean it's okay to do that thing. Being born a sinner doesn't make it right. We must point people to a far more important claim. Regardless of what is true or not when you were born, Jesus says that you must be born again. And so when people talk, they're, well, this is just who I am. This is a part of who I am. Because that is what the world will tell you. This is the way I am. I can't change. 
I can't do anything other than be who I am because this is who I am. But if those are sinful desires, sinful things, what does Jesus say? You must be born again. The idea that, oh, I was born this way. This is who I am. You must be born again. That may be true. But Jesus says you must be born again. John 3, 3. Jesus tells me, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we must remember this, that no matter people's sin, no matter our own sin, they can be redeemed because of the blood of Jesus. They can be born again. So now when you see someone in a state, you see someone that is wildly living in their sin, embracing their sin, identifying as their sin, they are living and walking in a way that is far from God. They, this, this passage we were talking about earlier in Proverbs, they are the one who have, have gone after perverse things. They are the one that speak evil things. They do evil things. Is there hope for that person? Yes. Because by the blood of Jesus, they can be born again. Who they are will pass away and a new creation will be formed. And we must remember that about ourselves, that, that as we walked, as we lived our lives, as we were walking in our sin, that person has passed away if we follow Christ. We have been born again. And if we haven't been born again, that's a very concerning thing. If we've been walking away our whole life and we, can, and we just say, I follow Jesus now, and there's no change, there's no born again evidence in our life, that's a problem. Because what does Jesus say? Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how are we born again? By what Jesus has done for us. So desire, we've talked a lot about that. In and of itself, though, desire is not sin. Having a, an inclination, having a desire in and of itself. Desire gives birth to sin. That's what this passage tells us. Desire, when it's full-grown, conceives and gives birth to sin. When you desire for something, it grows and gives birth to sin. You will not find yourself accidentally committing heinous acts. Right? Today, I really hope, please don't make me wrong on this, I really hope that, that tomorrow, if I talk with one of you, you wouldn't say, whoops, I accidentally robbed a bank and killed three people. I have no idea how that happened. People do things like that. And as you sit right now, you'd be like, you might think, I could never do that. Desire gives birth to sin. What motivates someone to do something like that? Well, they want money. There's greed. There's pride. There's envy. These desires that all of us have. And when those things become full born into sin, these heinous things come. There was a song that was very popular a few years ago. It was called... Uh, it was, I think it was Casting Crowns. It's a slow fade, right? This idea that walking and, and journeying into sin is a slow fade. Desire is within you. Gives birth to sin. So the people that you hear of that have done terrible things, have done heinous things, it's not that they just decided all of a sudden to do that. There was desire within them. And that desire was fed and fed and it gave birth to sin in their lives. So what does that mean for us? We have to stop our sin at the beginning. We have to be careful with our desires. We need to not endorse and allow these sinful desires to blossom and to thrive in our lives because desire gives birth to sin that when it is full grown leads to death. 
What do we see in Romans 6, 23? The wages of sin is death. We're going to focus on that first part. We'll come back to this verse. The wages of sin is death. When we talked with the kids at VBS, we make it very simple, very clear to understand. What does that mean? The wages of sin is death. What happens when you do something wrong at home with your parents? Which we ask the kids. What happens when you break the rules at school? When you do something wrong at home? I get in trouble. The wages of talking when you're not supposed to in class is missing recess. Right? They understand, and from a very young age, we can understand if I do the wrong thing, there are consequences for my actions. When we sin, when we walk in sin, when we have sin in our lives, the wages of that sin is death. Separation from God. That is the, the punishment that we deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve, that every person who has sinned, and that is every person, deserves death. But what do we see the last part of this verse and the last part of this passage? They coincide so beautifully. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we look at every good gift. James 1, 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. But by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We must remember that every good and perfect gift is from where? From God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And we need to make sure we name and recognize those things in our lives so that we are grateful and thankful. We talk about praying with thanksgiving, our everyday blessings. The, the fact that we woke up this morning is a blessing from above. The fact that we are here this morning gathering together to worship, to fellowship, to sing His praises is a blessing from above. The fact that, that we get to celebrate Father's Day is a blessing from above. Every good and perfect gift that you have in your life comes from God. It's by His grace we experience Him. It's by His grace that we have not experienced and did not experience the wages of our sin before He gave us the ultimate gift, our salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what we are looking at. This is what we see here is that, that we face trials, we face all these things, but the gift of God that we must remember is our salvation. We face these things, but we know that, that when we face them, that we'll become like Christ, and we know that ultimately all of these things will be worth it because in the end, we will get to receive the crown of righteousness. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that, has, that God has promised to those who love him. Because of what he did for us, by his own choice, he gave us birth born again by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We do nothing to earn or keep our salvation. We do nothing to, to gain our salvation, to, to demand our salvation. God gives it freely to those who would respond to it. And we must be grateful for our salvation. And we must be sure of our salvation. We must know and believe that Jesus has died for us and that we have repented of our sins, that we have turned away, that we have been born again because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. 
And so as we come to this time of invitation, I want to challenge you and, and challenge you to consider how are you facing the trials in your life today? When bad things happen, are you overcome by them? Are you overwhelmed by this difficulty in your life? Or are you trusting in God, asking Him for wisdom to help you through these trials, knowing that He will do it? Believing with all that you are, without doubt. Is there any double-mindedness within you? Is there anything that you're pursuing other than God? And most importantly, I ask you today is, do you know Him as your Lord and Savior this truth that we know, this idea of being born again, this idea of being saved because of what Jesus has done for us, have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Is there evidence in your life that you have been born again? This morning, we're going to have this time of invitation, and I want to challenge you to deal with these things in your life. The altar is open if you want to come and to pray and to seek God to help you through anything you may be facing, and I'll be down front for prayer as well. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, to have a relationship with Him, please come today so that you don't have any more time. You don't have to have any doubt in your mind about what it means to follow Christ. And you can be confident when you face trials and tribulations in this life. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we've gathered together to worship you, to look at your word. And God, I pray that as each of us today are facing various trials and tribulations, various trials and temptations, Lord, I pray that you would give each one wisdom, as I know that you will, to overcome these trials, to live faithful to you, to, to, to not walk in evil or to be overcome by those who are walking in evil, but to walk faithful to you and to your word. God, I pray that if there are any who do not know you this morning, that today would be the day that they would come to know you, that today would be the day that they believe in you, they trust in what Jesus has done, that they are born again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.